Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from First Orlando. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at firstorlando.com. And if you're in the Orlando area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now, enjoy this podcast from First Orlando. So today we're in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a series on awkward conversations. Paul gets pretty um, awkward with them, at least on their part it was. And he, he addresses <clears throat> all kinds of things. Today he's talking about lawsuits. So how many of you counted the number of commercials that you saw that was from an attorney, a local attorney. Did anybody get a count? I know a count because somebody took it upon themselves to count cable TV daytime only. You want to know the number? 70. 70 commercials. So we live in a world that's saturated with litigation. Okay? I mean, it's everywhere. Paul says, hold up, hang on. How many of you are, are attorneys in the room? I, I want to see your hand. <laughs> All right. Come on, don't be afraid to lift your hand. Thank you, thank you. There's a bunch in the balcony. I wonder why. I don't know why they sat up there today. <laughs> Can I tell you about two attorneys and a Baptist preacher walked in a bar one time? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You've heard all the attorney jokes you need. The only one I got for you is, do you know what you call a priest who becomes an attorney? Father-in-law. Okay. So, <laughs> when you read this, you can't read it through the lens of what you do. Let me tell you why. Here's some caveats. Number one, God is not against law, and he's not against a court system. He created it. He made one of the most elaborate systems for justice when the people were still nomads in the wilderness. God is a God of justice. So you can't possibly read these and think, well, no, we should reject anything that has to do with the court system of this world. No. Paul actually appealed to the Roman law to be able to go to Rome. Paul used his Roman citizenship whenever it came in handy for the gospel's sake. He's not anti-law. He's not anti-court. Second thing, using the law of the land and the court system is sometimes the best way to deal with an issue. This does not address when the issue involves an agency, an institution, a government, it doesn't talk about that. And so it don't make it say what it doesn't say. It's very, very limited, and it's very clear what he's talking about. There are times when it is appropriate, obviously. And even it doesn't mention legal issues with non-Christians. Okay? These are all believers that he's going to be describing. The third thing, I want to recommend... Consider, if you have an issue with a brother or sister in Christ, consider Christian arbitration or mediation. There are some great 
ministries out there that attorneys are a part of, like some of our own that are in the church or are a part of them, we're going to put them on the website. You just go to firstorlando.com backslash legal, and you'll find a list of some of those that really will help you. I've used them. I've been a part of mediation where they've been involved, and they're really, really good because they, they honor what the Scripture is about to tell us. So what Paul is going to tell us today is two things. Number one, chapter 5, he's already said, the problem with the church in Corinth is the standards have been lowered and the purity level is way below what God intends. And that's where he talked about chapter 5, this sexual offender that was there. And they were proud of it and didn't deal with it, okay? That's one issue. But in this chapter, chapter 6, he says, and the other problem I have with your church there at Corinth is that you're mistreating one another. You're not loving one another. You're not acting like a family of God. You're taking one another to court all the time. So you got to remember, he's speaking to a specific church within a specific culture. The principles we learn here transcend that culture, transcend that church, but it sure does help to know who was the original audience who heard this. And so Paul is going to say, first of all, when you have an issue with another Christian. Don't run out to the courts. Let's read it in his words. I'm going to read verse 1. We're just going to go down through verse 3 to start with. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Then how much more matters pertaining to this life? Okay, let's just stop there for a moment. It's very clear he's talking about issues between brothers in Christ. There's a phrase that he uses six times. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? I mean, six times. He says that to them in this chapter. What he's saying by that is, guys, you ought to know this. You ought to know this. You ought to know how to behave in this. In other words, you're better than this. You ought to know these things. He says, when you have an issue with another brother, remember, first of all, who you are. You are the church. You are the family of God. You are united in blood. You say, well, I'm not blood kin to them. Yes, you are. What makes this one is the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no east or west. There's no male or female. There's no slave or free. We are one in Christ. The church came out of the Old Testament picture of the people of God. And you remember what he told them as far back as Leviticus? He said, you're to be holy because I am holy. The word holy means separate. You're not supposed to act like the nations around you. You're supposed to be different. So the first thing he is appealing to him is just remember who you are. You're brothers in Christ. And then the second thing he said, why have you forgotten? You're going to judge the world. You're going to judge angels. Now, I know when you, we read that, you're like, oh, wait a minute. What is that about? Well, let me give you first a clue. The word judge means govern. It means govern. 
And yes, the Bible teaches that we will be seated with Jesus Christ. We will share in his glory. We will reign with him. Can we give him thanks for that? We know that. That's very clearly taught in Scripture. A part of that involves the final days of judgment as it relates to an unbelieving world and even to the angels. I don't, and the Bible never says how it happens, okay? It never gets specific. But it appears that the body of Christ, Christians, will be given exalted positions above the angels and above the world because of our faith and our relationship to Jesus. And in that position, we will have a sense of governing over the world and kind of how that plays out. Some believe it's in the millennial kingdom. Some believe it's later, uh, near the great white throne judgment. I, we don't know. But I know there are two places in the New Testament where it refers to judging angels. One of them is in 1 Peter, and one of them is in Jude. Both of them talk about the fallen angels, the rebellion that was led by Lucifer or Satan as we know him. Those angels that fell with him were cast into hell and have been imprisoned there until the day of judgment. And guess who gets to be a part of that day when they are finally judged once and for all? We will. Now, He's saying, if you're going to be judges over angels or ruling or go governing over angels, can't y'all just get it figured out among yourself? I mean, it's kind of the logic from greater to the less. I mean, you know, it's like the paint company. They used to have a commercial that said, hey, we painted the space shuttle. We painted the Empire State Building, and we think we can handle your bathroom. Come on. You can do this. We can work things out. Treat one another like brothers in Christ because that's who you are. Second thing, remember you have a mission. And your mission is to reach a lost world. And what makes your mission really tough is when you hang your dirty laundry out for the world to see. When you go to the world and the world who they don't even understand the things of faith, but yet you entrust them to lead in a judgment against a brother or a brother. So Paul is saying, no, that's not the way you should do it. Let's read the next few verses, verse 4 through 8. He says, so if you have cases, why don't you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against another brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So the first thing he says is that the world doesn't understand your faith. It doesn't understand why you do what you do. And it's not going to be able to understand motives. And more importantly than that, you need to have a witness. So yes, you have a legal right to take anything to the court systems of this world. But I would argue, according to Paul, you don't have a spiritual right. You have a legal right, but you don't have the spiritual prerogative to do that. 
And let me tell you why. You may win the suit, but you lose and the gospel loses. You lose and the gospel loses. So Paul even got to this point and said, hey, why don't you just go ahead and be, fraud, be defrauded? Why don't you just suffer the wrong? And I want to refer you to those last verses. Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brother? Now, what is he talking about? Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You know who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. Consider what Jesus did. So that you don't feel like, well, it's my right. Well, yes, it's your right. Did Jesus always claim his rights? Did he always demand his rights? No, hardly. In fact, let me show you what the disciple Peter wrote about Jesus when he wrote the book of 1 Peter. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he, was, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That's talking about Jesus. Did he have a right? Yeah, he did. Did what, hap what hap was happening to him, was that wrong? Yes, it was wrong. But he didn't do anything to change it. Why? Because he was doing it for a greater mission. A greater ministry and mission, and that is the salvation of mankind. So every once in a while, let the thought run through your mind, maybe the best thing I should do is let it go. Maybe I should suffer the wrong. Jesus did. Now, I'm not saying in every case. You have to make that a case-by-case -case basis, but Paul introduces it as a possibility. Now, from that conversation, he then moves into this statement, there's no way the unrighteous are going into heaven. And a lot of people have tried to figure out, so how is verses 1 through 8 connected to verse 9 through 11? Because it's like he turns and starts talking about these sins and how there's not going to be anyone who commits these sins in heaven. I'm going to show you. It's easy to miss it. And you would never know it unless you understand some words. Okay, go to verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. You see the word wrong? That's the word unrighteous. That is the word to do something unrighteous. So what Paul is trying to say is, hey, the way you're treating one another is just as unrighteous as all these sins that I'm telling you about just as unrighteous. That ought to be a wake-up call to the church to go, man, do we treat one another in a way that's honorable? Because how can we say to a world, well, your unrighteousness is going to send you to hell, and we got just as much unrighteousness inside the building as we do outside? Do you see what he's saying? And then he connects it in a beautiful way. Because the very next verse, verse 9 or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, 
But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is the most amazing ending for this. We always get hung up on, well, who's not going to make it in? Who's not going to make it to heaven? And sometimes in our zeal to want to define who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't, we tend to get focused on behavior. Can I just tell you the list of sins is a list of behavior. Behavior will never send you to hell any more than behavior will get you into heaven. That is not a decision that is made on the basis of behavior. It is a decision made on the basis of your heart condition. Do you believe? You see, the primary sin that sends the person to hell is unbelief and unrepentance. The fruit of unbelief, pretty obviously you can see it, and the fruit of the flesh. But watch this. All of us were in that list. And by the way, if that list didn't catch you, maybe there's one later. There are six different lists that he uses of sins. Six of them. And the reason he uses them is to try to fit the moment. These churches, for example, the number one most often mentioned sin in the list that Paul gives of unrighteous behavior is this. Sexual immorality. Now, sometimes he'll add the word adulterer. Sometimes he'll add the word homosexual. I mean, he'll add to it, but it's always the word pornea is in there. You want to you wanna take a wild guess why well, that might have been always? Out of six lists, it's mentioned nine times. Do you remember where Corinth was? Corinth was sitting at the base of a mountain, and on that mountain was a temple to Aphrodite, and 1,000 prostitutes representing Aphrodite worked the streets of Corinth every day. And they became known because it was a way of worship. It was a way to be accepted in the society. You have sex with one of these prostitutes, and therefore you are going to be closer to the god Aphrodite. They lived with that. So Paul starts where we are, not where we should be. He starts with a world that's messed up, and he says, sexually immoral. Now, on this list, Remember, there are six lists. Do you know what the number two most often mentioned sin in the list is? Number one would be pornea or sexual immorality. You know what the number two most often mentioned? Gossiper. Slanderer. It's the number two. It's mentioned five times in six lists. But you know what's funny? I don't hear many sermons about gossipers going to hell. But I hear a lot of talk about homosexuals going to hell. I don't hear a lot of talk about adulterers going to hell. And I would tell you, there's more adulterers in this church than there are homosexuals. And the reason I know it is because they have come needing forgiveness and getting help to save their marriage. And by the grace of God, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, he saved their marriage. But they will be honest and tell you, yes, I messed up. And that's not even to count those that are involved in pornography or those that walk around looking upon women with lust. I mean, that category would make it easily. So why do you think we pick certain, certain sins? 
Why do we pick just certain ones out of the list? I'll tell you exactly why, because they're not ours. We always love to pick the sins that aren't ours. But the moment you start talking about slander and gossip and revilers, those stirring up dissension, oh, wow, it gets quiet. It's not amen anymore. It's oh, me. I mean, it just gets silent. But you've got to see what Paul is saying. Every one of these are detestable. Every one of these. He said, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. So then my question is, so does that mean that I'm not going to heaven if I slipped up this weekend and I had sex with somebody, I'm not married to them. So you mean I, I'm done? Nope. That's the good news. I want to show you something. It's the best way I know how to describe the way Paul thinks and the way the Bible presents our life. Okay. This is known as Caesar's weed or it's known as burr ivy. Now, it's got these little, I don't know, little burrs, like cucklebur. And if you walk through here, I mean, they're everywhere. It's everywhere. You walk through a place that has them, and you got them. They're called hitchhikers, by the way. And, and you got them all over you. In fact, I know that by experience because I had a pair of pants one time that I'd been out hunting in those pants, and I had them all over. And I just threw those in the washer. And Rachel goes, uh, I found a bunch of stuff on your pants. Did you check them? No, I didn't. But these things are terrible. This is a part of the curse. Briars, thistles, yep, and burr ivy. It's part of the curse. Every one of us were born with this seed. Every one of us. There is not one among us righteous. We all have this spirit in us. It's the depravity of man. It's a theology lesson that starts in the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell, and therefore we all fell. Paul says, no, there's not one of us without sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. But then Jesus showed up, and he gave us another seat to those who believe and to those who are willing to turn to him by faith. <clears throat> this is an avocado seat. Now, the reason I'm using avocado seed is because with avocados, you get holy guacamole. I like guacamole. <laughs> it's a good thing, right? So, here's the lesson. The day you gave, became a Christian, you got this seed. <clears throat> this produces fruit of the Spirit. This produces the fruit of the flesh. As a Christian... You got both. And there's a war going on. And Paul said in Romans 7, man, the things I should do, I don't. And the things I shouldn't do, I end up doing. Who can save me? I feel like there's a war going on inside of me. And the answer to his, his own question was, Jesus Christ is the only one. Do you know why the Bible talks about seeing yourself dead to this? It's because if you see yourself dead to this, this will be bigger in your life than this. But here's what I need you to hear and listen very carefully. If you walk up to me and say, you know, David, every once in a while, I, I just, I struggle. Pick one of the sins. I don't care which one. Greed. I struggle with greed. Does that mean I'm, I'm not going to heaven? You know what I'm going to say? No, it doesn't mean you're not going to heaven. In fact, 
I know you're not because of a word you just used. Struggle. When you don't have both of these, you don't struggle. It's all you got right there. It comes natural because it is natural. It's who you are. And you sin and never think twice about it. But when Jesus is living in you and the Holy Spirit is in you, all of a sudden there's struggle. And I'll give you three words that are just dead clues that you are his child. And if you don't have these, we need to talk. Number one, conviction. When you do something that's more the fruit of this, there's going to be conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit living within you. You're going to know. You're going to know in your heart, that's not me. What I just did, I hate it. That's not who I am, and I don't want to do that. Just like Paul said in Romans 7. Second, brokenness. There's going to be brokenness in you. And the reason you're broken is because you know you were not created for that, and you know there's a better way, and you know it breaks the heart of God. And the third is repentance. Repentance is just a simple word that means you're going one way, and you go, you know what, that's not the way I'm supposed to live my life, and you turn. And you follow this way. So basically what you got is you're following this, and the fruit of the flesh is that evident in your life. And you're struggling with it. You're convicted about it. You're broken about it. But there comes a moment you go, uh-uh, I can't do that. And you turn. And you follow Christ. And all of a sudden, guess what grows in your life? The fruit of the Spirit grows instead of the fruit of the flesh. So this morning, if there's no struggle... please, don't ignore this. If there's no struggle in you at all, then I want to introduce you to somebody. His name is Jesus. And he's got a better way for you. Now, I have to be honest, when he comes in your life, it's going to be a mess. Every once in a while, we'll baptize somebody, and they said, man, I gave my life to Jesus, got baptized, and had the worst week of my life. That's right. Because there's a war going on. Satan doesn't want to give up on you. And he doesn't want to let go of you. But Jesus is bigger and stronger. If you just will look to him, he will win the battle every time in you. That's the life we're living. And here's even better news. Verse 11. Look at this. This is, this is shouting ground. You're Baptist, but some of you can shout. And such were some of you, but. That's who we are. We are sinners in that list, but God did something to change us. Can we give him praise? Just thank him for what he did for us. And what did he do? He washed us. Look at this. He washed you. He's sanctifying you and justified you. Wash, what does that mean? By the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, Paul says in Titus, it's a washing of the Spirit, a regeneration. But I'm telling you, it is washing with the blood of Jesus. There's an old hymn that says, what can take my sin away or wash my sin away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When you invite Jesus into your life, not only that seed comes in, but something happens to you. You are washed. So when we go to the beach next weekend, if you've never been over there and we do it, I want to encourage you to come. 
And if you've never been baptized, never been immersed, that's why immersion is so practical and so powerful because it pictures somebody dying, going under the water, and coming up, and you just feel like you have been washed. Now, baptism doesn't save you because what saves you is the moment he washes your sins away with the blood of Jesus Christ. But baptism is a beautiful picture of that. And then the second word, sanctify. What does that mean? You're growing up. You're becoming more like Jesus. And the third word, justify, what does that mean? He looks at you and declares you righteous. Now follow me. He looks at you and declares you righteous, but yet you still got that. Yeah. But you know how he sees you righteous? Hmm. <clears throat> he covers you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the righteousness of Christ covers all that stuff. Kind of giving us a glimpse that one day, that's gone. One day we'll never have to deal with that again. He covers you with the righteousness of Christ. So when he sees you, he sees the righteousness of his son. And you are declared righteous. And that is such as some of us. Sinners. Saved by grace. So you know what this verse makes me want to say? Let the sexually immoral come. Let the revilers come. Let the swindlers come. Let the homosexuals come. Let the adulterers come. Because we have found grace and so will you in this place. This is where grace can change your life. This is a place of hope. Where else do you go to hear that? So this week, we got a text on Wednesday, Hebrews 7.25. Man, this, this one hit me. I opened my phone. It was 6.30. It comes about 6.30. I opened it, and I read it. Consequently, he is able to save to the what? Uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he, is all, since he always lives to make intercession, the hymn is Jesus. Can you believe he saves the uttermost? And he saves to the uttermost. You know what that verse tells me? I don't care who you are. He can save you. Uh, you know what these verses tell me? There's hope for everybody. No matter what you've done, no matter how messed up you came into the room or how messed up you are this morning watching this stream, I'm telling you, Jesus can save to the uttermost. And you'll never be the same again. And you know how I know that? Because of what he did on the cross. One night before he died, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And as often as you eat this bread, remember me. And he took the cup and he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. Not a covenant of law, not a covenant of behavior, not a covenant of what you do, but a covenant of what he did as he shed his blood to wash our sins away. As often as you drink the cup, remember me. Now, can I tell you, these elements don't save you. They just remind us what does save us, and that's Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the First Orlando Podcast. For more information like our service times, location, and other contact information, be sure to visit us online at firstorlando.com. Have a great week.